Awesome. Hey, uh, before we get into uh, the content today, uh, I want to give a little commercial once again. Uh, two dates that I want to give you. Uh, August 27, I talked to you about that last week, but if you call this church your church, uh, we want all hands on deck next week. We're not uh, live casting this out, so don't miss it. Be here. Uh, it's going to be a great day, an important day. So if you call the Creek Church your church, be sure you're here. And then also a second date so that you can go ahead and plan for it is September 10. And on September 10, we're asking everybody to bring their one, right? We ask that a lot around here. Who's your one? Who's that one person that you're praying for who's far from God uh, that needs to take a step back towards their heavenly father? So on September the 10, we're going to be sharing one of the most incredible stories right out of our church. And we're going to be talking uh, to folks about taking that step back to their heavenly father. So whoever your one is or a group of ones, we would love for you to make sure you bring them here on September 10 um, because it's gonna be a great day, all right? So if the Creek Church is your church, be here next Sunday and then make sure you bring somebody else with you on September the 10th, all right? Now, if you're a guest of ours or you've just been away on summer break and you're just getting back in the swing of things, uh, we have been talking about uh, the fact that when it comes to our hearts, our hearts are prone to wonder and our faith tends to drift. And when our heart wonders and our faith drifts, it usually goes in the direction of something unwise and unhealthy. And this is something that we've all done. This is a story that we all could share. And the reason that we share this in common is that we all are at risk of being easily distracted. We get easily distracted by the wrong thing. We end up focusing on the wrong thing. And then in time, we give our hearts uh, to the wrong thing. So consequently, we all have had seasons. Uh, maybe you're in one right now. Maybe you just came out of one. Maybe you're getting ready to get into one. But we all have seasons when we need to refocus our faith so that our faith can be renewed and revived. And that's what we've been talking about. So I've got some good news for us. If you have drifted or if you have wondered, uh, I've got some advice for you so that you can get back to where you used to be. And for those of you who feel like you're focused on the right thing right now, I've got a good vaccine so that you don't wonder and that you don't drift. And it's this verse that we've been looking at week after week. And I hope at the end of this series, you know, when we move on to something else next week and we move on to something else throughout September and the rest of the fall, I hope you wake up every day and hear this verse that we're about to look at. I hope it's down there deep in your heart and in your mind so that you can hear and see these words every single day, multiple times throughout the day, because this is the key for us not to wonder or not to drift. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. And then he goes on to say, to consider him or give careful thought to who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, so that your heart won't wonder and your faith won't drift. And if every day you can get up and begin to hear that verse and to begin to quote that verse to say, today I wanna be fixed on Jesus, I wanna be focused on Jesus so that my heart doesn't wonder, so that my faith doesn't drift, I think that's gonna be a great start for you staying focused or a great start on you getting refocused off of the wrong things and back on the right thing. And so back in week one, if you weren't here, we talked about the fact that when we fix our eyes on Jesus and we consider what Jesus did on the cross for you and for me, it causes us to love Jesus more. You just, you just can't look at the cross and you can't fix your eyes on Jesus and consider that what he did, he did it for us. That when you fix your eyes on Jesus, you are reminded that he loves you, but you're also confronted with how much he loves you. That he loves you so much and he loves me so much, he was willing to die for us. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we give serious thought to what Jesus did and what Jesus endured for us, it inspires us, it motivates us to lay aside weight and sin, which causes us not to run the race that we were intended to run. It inspires us to lay aside weight and sin, which causes us from being the best version of ourselves. And so it's so important to fix our eyes on Jesus, to consider him. And then last week we talked about that when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you consider what he did for us on the cross, not only do you realize that he did it for you, and not only do I realize that he did it for me, but I realize that he did it for everyone. Every person Jesus loved and considered worth dying for. And that reminds me that I'm supposed to fix my heart on those far from God. That that's the thing that I've been called to do. That's the thing that we've been called to do. To be witnesses, to be tellers, to pursue those that are far from God and nothing else should excite us more than the idea of people coming to faith in Jesus or taking a step in the direction of Jesus because that's what we're all about. And it should inspire us to have conversations of faith with our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, to talk about our faith in order to influence their faith or lack of faith. 
to give invitation to say, hey, would you come with me this Sunday? Would you come with me on September 10? We're, we're doing this thing at church. We're sharing this really incredible story. I would love for you to be my guest. Hey, I'll buy you lunch. There's a whole bunch of single people. I know you're single. I, I, you might even get a wife or a husband out of it if you show up with me on September 10. I, I mean, already today, we've been reminded that two people have gotten hitched as a result of our church. So, I mean, this is something we're good at. So, you know, invite your single friends, invite your married people, you know, and say, hey, I want you to be here because that's what we do. That's the business that we are in. But today we're going to go a little bit further, and this is what we're going to talk about. That when we fix our eyes on what Jesus did for us, it punctuates and clarifies what Jesus said to us. Now, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it causes us to love Jesus more. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, our hearts get fixed on those far from Jesus. But when we decide to focus in on Jesus and what he did for us, it begins to punctuate and clarify everything that Jesus has said to us. Now, Here's the fact of the matter that they may have not told you in the church that you came from or the church you grew up in, or maybe you've never been in church before and that's okay too. But here's the thing a lot of people won't tell you. Not everything that Jesus said was clear. We're still guessing on some of the things that Jesus said and what he meant by it. Some of the little parables that he told, you know, some people say he meant this, some people say that. So not everything that Jesus said was absolutely clear. We have good guesses. Sometimes we have educated guesses, but sometimes all we have is a guess and it could go either way. But a lot of things that Jesus said was overwhelmingly clear. And the clear things that Jesus said way overshadows a few of the little things that Jesus said, which may not have been very clear. And here's the point, that when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you focus in on what Jesus did for you and what he did for us, it begins to then punctuate, give meaning to, and gives clarity to all the things that Jesus has said to us. For example, when Jesus told his followers and told all of us who claim to be Jesus followers to forgive one another, when we focus our eyes on Jesus and when we see what Jesus did for us, it punctuates his message on forgiveness and it clarifies his message on forgiveness. When we see Jesus hanging on the cross and Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It punctuates and clarifies what he has said to us about forgiveness. When he looks at a thief on his side and says, hey, I forgive you and today you're gonna be with me in paradise. It punctuates and it clarifies. When Jesus said, I want you to serve one another, when we focus and fix our eyes on Jesus, it punctuates and clarifies what Jesus meant by that. And specifically, specifically when we focus in and fix our eyes on Jesus and we consider what he did on the cross, it underscores, it underlines, it italicizes, it puts it in big bold print, red letter, one thing that he said which was more important than all the other things that he said, the one command, the one subject which trumps all the other subjects and all the other commands, which was love. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, everything that Jesus said about love is punctuated and clarified for us. Specifically on the night that Jesus was arrested, Jesus spoke these words. Many of you have heard these words before. Some of you may have never heard them before, but we need to hear them over and over again. This is what Jesus said on the night that he was gonna be arrested to his followers. He said, a new command I give you. So it was fresh, it was new, but the thing about it was it wasn't that new and it wasn't that fresh. He said, a new command that I give to you, love one another. Now, they had heard this before. They had heard this from Jesus before. Jesus had told them that when you love your neighbor, you have fulfilled the entire law. Jesus had said things like, when you do for others what you wish others would do for you. That's the rule you're supposed to live by, right? That's like the summation of the law. Everything that the law was trying to accomplish, that's it right there. So Jesus had talked to them about love. And even in the Old Testament, they could read about loving their neighbor. But the problem was, in the Old Testament, and even in New Testament times with the Jewish people, they had defined their neighbor in very narrow terms. If you were a Jewish person, your neighbor was only Jewish. But it were only the Jewish people that did certain things right. And if you were a Jewish person that did wrong things or had a certain type of job or, you know, this or that, then, then you didn't have to be my neighbor and I didn't have to love you as my neighbor. So here's the new part. Jesus says, I want you to love one another. And this is the clarity behind it. And this is the newness. He goes on. Would you go back one, please? Oh, yeah. He said, no, yes, right there. He says, as I have loved you. That's the new part. He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Guys, the way I've loved you is the way that I want you to love one another. So you must love one another. This is not a suggestion. That This is not just something that I think you ought to think about or pray about. If you're a Jesus follower, and many and maybe most of you say that you are, and those of you online there in Somerset, if you say you're a Jesus follower, this is not up for debate. You can't pray about this. 
You don't have to decide if this is the will of God for your life. This is what you must do. This is without option. You can't opt out of this. So you must love one another. And then he goes on, he says, by this, one thing, will everybody know that you are my disciples? What? If you love one another. In other words, it's not gonna be your politics and what you're willing to vote for or vote against that's gonna convince people that you're a Jesus follower. It's not even gonna be your theology of what you believe or disbelieve in that's gonna convince people that you're a Jesus follower. And it's not gonna be your morality. It's not gonna be what you consider to be right or wrong or what you're willing to consider inbounds or out of bounds that's really gonna make people be convinced that you're a Jesus follower or not. He said, the one thing that's gonna cause people to connect you with me is when you love one another as I have loved you. And Jesus said, when you love each other the way that I have loved you, it's gonna be so radical, it's gonna be so weird, it's gonna be so revolutionary, it's gonna be so unique, so unheard of, so abnormal that people are gonna take notice of it and the only conclusion that they're gonna be able to draw is that you must be a follower of Jesus because you love people the way that Jesus had loved you. In other words, when you fix your eyes on the one who died for you, you know how you are supposed to love the one in front of you. When you fix your eyes on the one who died for you, it automatically begins to clarify how you are supposed to love the one who is in front of you. And this is the point that Jesus is gonna make to his followers the night that he is arrested. He goes on to punctuate it again. He says, my command is this, love others as I've loved you. Now, do you ever get the feeling that Jesus didn't think his disciples were too sharp? Because didn't he just say this, right? Do you ever listen to one of my sermons and you think, he just says the same things over and over again. That's because I'm playing Jesus and you're playing the disciples, <laughs> right? We're hard of hearing, we get distracted. We're thinking about dinner, we're thinking about lunch, we're thinking about this, we're thinking about that. Jesus said, guys, I don't want you to forget this and I don't want you to miss this, so make sure you get this. My command is this, love others as I have loved you. And then he begins to clarify it even more. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for their friends. So guys, ladies, gentlemen, Jesus looks at his disciples that night in the upper room and perhaps he looked over at Nathaniel and says, hey, Nate, I want you to go love people the way I've loved you. And when they make fun of you, I don't want you to get all bent up out of shape. And Nate's like, what are you talking about? I remember when you make fun of where I was born. You dished my hometown. You said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Did I get all bent up out of shape? Did I throw a crazy? Did I get offended? Did I get all sensitive and stomp and go back home? No, I loved you, even though you insulted where I came from. Hey, Peter, Peter, I'm gonna tell you again in a few minutes, but tonight and later on in the morning, you're gonna deny me three times. But you know what, Peter, even though I know what you're about to do, I love you. I love you on the front side of it. And what you're gonna discover is I'm gonna love you on the back side of it. Peter, that's how I want you to go love other people. James, John, don't think I left you out. Remember just a few hours ago when you were arguing about who's going to sit on my right side, who's going to sit on my left side. I just told you that I was going to go die and suffer, but you were so selfish, so self-absorbed that the only thing you cared about was your kingdom that you wanted to figure out who was going to sit on the right hand or the left hand of my throne. But you know what? I loved you before that. I've loved you after it. Did you sense that I've been at aught with you? Have I been giving you the cold shoulder? No, that's how I want you to go love each other. Hey, hey, Thomas, you're not going to believe this, but you're going to doubt me. You're going to like doubt me face to face. But you know what? I love you even though I know what you're about to do. And on the other side of what you actually do, I'm still going to love you. And Thomas, that's how I want you to go love other people. Matthew, remember I came to your house when no one would come to your house. I invited you to come hang out with me when nobody was asking you to hang out with them. That's how I want you to go love one another. Guys, Think about it. Think about how I've loved you. I believed in you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go believe in other people. Stop being so cynical about people. Stop being so suspicious about people. Stop letting the bad news that you're inundated with day in and day out change the way you see your fellow citizens of humanity. They are no different than you. You are the same. You're descended from the same parents. You have the same inclinations to do the wrong thing. Quit being so cynical. And believe in some people because that's what I did for you because I loved you. I want you to go encourage other people because remember, I've encouraged you all along this path that we've been on. So I want you to go and encourage other people because that's what I did because I loved you. I want you to go to get to know other people 
Because that's what you do when you love people. You go and you get to know them. Did I not get to know you guys? I invited you to follow me. I wanted to know about your hopes and your dreams. I wanted to know the good side of you. I wanted to know the bad side of you. I wanted to know everything in between because that's what you do when you love somebody. So here's guys, here guys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get to know some people. I want you to get out of your little circle and I want you to go get to know some people. Hey guys, go love like I've loved. Go have some fun with people. I know some of you grew up in church and you thought that church and Jesus following was synonymous with not fun because everybody you went to church with looked not fun and they looked miserable and every Sunday was like a funeral and it was just horrible and it's terrible. But Jesus said, I want you to go love one another. And here's how you do it. Go have fun with each other. Have we not had some fun? We've laughed together. We've cut up together. Go travel with some people. Get in a car and go travel because that's what we did. Remember when we went 100 miles to Caesarea Philippi and we went on the coast and we went to the, you know, the lake. Don't you remember all that? We, we traveled together. Go travel with some people because that's how you love them like I have loved you. Now, on a deeper note, forgive them when they wrong you because that's what I've done for you. Be patient with people because that's what I've done for you. Go the second mile for them because that's what I have done with you. Go love them the way I have loved you. And guys, if you ever wanna know how you're supposed to love the person in front of you, fix your eyes on me. Consider what I have done and what I'm about to do for you because when you consider me and what I'm about to do when I die for your sins and the sins of the world on the cross, you will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that I want you to love others as I have loved you. And here's, here's the craziest thing of all. His followers, after his death, after his resurrection, and when Jesus goes back into heaven to sit at the right hand of his father, they actually took his word seriously. Can you imagine a world where Jesus followers takes the words of Jesus seriously? 20 and 21st century Christianity was the great opt-out generations. Jesus said it was in red lines, you know, red letters, and we thought it was pretty important and it was sweet and it was nice, but we really didn't treat it as though we needed to do it or we had to do it. It was just kind of suggestions. It, you could opt in, you could opt out based on whether it was easy or whether it was hard. But they actually trusted Jesus so much, loved Jesus so much that they did what he said. And so when the church was born, we talked about this last week on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, there was about 3,120 in the church. And then a few days after that, there was over 5,000 people in the church. And this is how the church was known because they took his word seriously. It says, they, the Jesus followers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, here's what the early church was known for. They would gather together and they would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the scripture, to the reading of scripture, to the teaching of scripture. They devoted themselves to doctrine, to theology and things like that because those things are good things, they're not bad things. But they not only you know, devoted themselves to gathering together for the sake of being, heard, you know, being taught the scriptures and hearing the scriptures and reading the scriptures, but on the same level, equal to, right alongside, it says they were also devoted to fellowship, right? You know, some of you grew up in churches where they would have the monthly fellowship and basically that just meant food and that, that was part of it. But, but the Greek word for fellowship here is koinonia, which means it's this partnership. It's these, these intimate friendships that are characterized by, there's no fences. There's no fences. There's no pretending that I'm pretending to be something I'm not. And you're, you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. That we bring down the fences and we have this intimate friendship. We have this partnership. We're all gathered around, rallying around this thing called Jesus and the church, understanding who we are and what we've been called to do. And so they would get together and they would break bread. I mean, who wouldn't be for that? Let's get together and eat some biscuits. Or maybe you're low carb. Some celery. You know, whatever. This month we're fasting. Maybe for you it's like, let's get together and drink some water. <laughs> but this is what they did. I mean, who, who couldn't get behind that? We're, we're going to gather together and we're going to listen to the teachings of the scriptures. And then we're going to get together and eat. We're going to share the dinner table together because one of the most important things about your life is who you invite in to have dinner with you. The people that you open a door to to say, hey, come have dinner with me, and the doors that you walk through to have dinner with people are going to be one of the most profound influences in your life. And the church understood the importance of the apostles' teaching and also to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And it says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. It was an incredible place to be. People wanted to get in on this. It was incredible. 
And then it says to them, all believers were, talk to me, what's this word? All the believers were what? Together. Because they understood that there's power in being together. Where were they together? It says they were together and they had everything in common. Now this is true, but not true. They didn't have everything in common. So is that an error? No, but the point is they didn't have shade of skin and color. They didn't have heritage and tradition in, you know, in common. They had lots of things that they didn't share in common. But the things that they did have in common were the most important things. The things that didn't matter, didn't matter. And so when you looked at the church, it seemed as though they were monolithic. It seemed as though they were just uniform, even though they weren't. It was diversity, but they were so unified in diversity. The conclusion was they had everything in common. No, they didn't, but they had the most important thing in common. And the most important thing was a person, and that was Jesus. And listen to this. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Are you kidding me? But they understood the power of together. That being together with other Jesus followers is an incredibly powerful thing. It's an incredibly powerful thing as it relates to your heart that is prone to wonder and your faith and my faith that tends to drift. But here we are in the 21st century and we're not so good at being together any longer. We weren't really great at being together at the close of the 20th century, but here in the 21st century, we are not as good at being together as what we once were. Matter of fact, sociologists have coined a new phrase to say, this is what we're good at these days. We are good at being alone together. We can be together, and many of us, hundreds of us are right now, but many of us feel alone even though we are together. And this is what we're good at. This is where our culture has taken us. We are really good at being alone together. If you don't believe me, just go to lunch today. Go to dinner one night this week and notice the new posture of how Americans eat dinner. Just pay attention how husbands and wives sit across the table in restaurants. And before the food gets there, they're two-handed. When dinner gets there, they're one-handed. Pay attention to how families are now eating together. And notice how a device is in someone's hand. Notice how we travel together. And you got the person who has to pay attention, in theory, driving. And then the good old co-captain over here, the passenger. <laughs> Perhaps the kids in the second and the third row. We're alone together. Hey, guys, I got a good idea. Let's all take a trip. Let's drive five hours and not talk to each other the whole way. That sound fun? Hey, let's all go to dinner and catch up on email. And I'm gonna pretend the very best that I can to care about what you're actually saying. I'm gonna pretend to be adjusting my belt when I'm checking my phone. We know what you're doing under the table. This is where we are. We are alone together. We want to be around people. This is where we've gotten to. We wanna be around people, but we don't want to be with people. We want to hide from each other. We want to have people at a distance and we want to control the amount of interaction that we have with people. We live in a culture that gives us the unique privilege to present an edited version of ourselves to the world. That we get to edit what we want into our lives and out of our lives so that we can present the life that we want to have, we wish we had, that we hope other people think that we have to the world. And we dare not want anybody to get close enough to know that the image that we've been presenting is merely a mirage, that it is edited, that we get the unique opportunity to delete, to touch up, to Photoshop, to swipe, We want all the illusions of companionship without any of the demands of friendship. We have learned very well how to be alone together. And we do that well inside the church. We get together, but many of us are alone together. But the early church, they got it right. And it says that every day, Every day they continued to meet, where? Together in the temple courts. That was their big group. And then they broke bread in their homes. That was a small group. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is, this is amazing. 
This is a huge church, thousands of people. And this seemed to come just innate. This was organic. This was natural. That all of a sudden, out of the gate, thousands of them would gather together at the temple courts in their big group. At the temple courts, they would get into rows. But they knew that that wasn't enough. They knew that that wasn't good enough. They knew that that wasn't sufficient. The songs that they sing would not be sufficient. The sermons that they would hear would not be sufficient. The interaction that they would have among a few people, amongst thousands of people, would not be enough. So there was something that drove them into a smaller context, into a home, around a table, in a circle. They had rows and they had circles because they knew that they needed both in order to fulfill the command of what Jesus had said. That when Jesus said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, they figured it out early on that they could not do that in rows with thousands of people. That the only way that they could truly fulfill the command of Jesus to love one another was that they were gonna have to get in a smaller circle. They were gonna have to get around somebody's dinner table and share life with each other. And it says that day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house because this was just the way they did it. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So as we read through the book of Acts and as we read through church history, we find out that the first Christians were committed to sitting in a row and sitting in a circle. That they would get together and they would have church just like we're having church right now. And there would be hundreds and thousands of them there in the temple courts. And they would do a lot of the things that we're doing right now. They would pray and somebody would read a scripture and maybe they would sing a song. But they knew even though that was great, even though that was necessary, that it was not the completion of the circle. They knew that rows were great, but they also needed circles in their life. Thousands of people meeting. Thousands of people meeting at the temple courts and then thousands of people meeting in homes all over Jerusalem, all just outside of Jerusalem. Because here's what Jesus knew and here's what the early church knew. That your greatest need, my greatest need, our greatest need is this right here. To be known and to be loved. To be known and to be loved. But we live in a culture that wants to be loved without having to be known. We want a church to love us. We want rows to love us. But we don't want a circle to know us. We want to be loved, but we do not necessarily want to be known. And both of these things were at the heart of what it meant to be in the church. That the church was a place where you could be both known and you could be loved. That that was such a great thing about the church. Here's what those Christians understood, that our personal relationship with God requires interpersonal relationships with other people who have a personal relationship with God. And that's what the New Testament is all about, that my personal relationship with God, your personal relationship with God requires interpersonal relationships with other people who have a personal relationship with God. And that's what the church was so good at. They were committed to sitting in rows and they were committed to sitting in circles. They understood that both were equally important. And, and here's, here's something else. The church was never intended to be a place where everyone knows your name, but it is a place where a group of someones should know your name. People say all the time, I don't wanna be a part of a church where people don't know my name. Some of you have said that. Undoubtedly. Or maybe they all just attend 8.30. <laughs> or maybe 11. But I just want a church where everybody knows me. Don't be a hypocrite. You don't know everybody. <laughs> Pastor, do you know everybody? Of course I do. <laughs> nice brother and sister sitting here on front row. Brother over there. Sister over there. Gets really personal. You, you don't want a church where everybody knows your name. You want a church where a group of someones know your name. You wouldn't have enjoyed the first century church. You couldn't be known by the thousands meeting at the temple court. They're not gonna know your name. There might be a few people who bump into you that know your name, but they understood that to be known and to be loved was not gonna happen in rows. To be known and to be loved was gonna have to happen in a circle. 
You need a group of someones who know your name, who know you and can love you the way that we can't love you in a row. How well can you love somebody five seats down from you in your row? How well can you love them the way that Jesus has loved you? You can't do it. That can only take place in a circle where a group of people know you and love you. And this community, this community that they developed was the answer to diversity. These people didn't have everything in common. That's what we want. We, we want uniformity. We want people the same stage of life, looks like us, talks like us, thinks like us, votes like us. And, and we want people. That's who we're going to hang out with. That's our people. Because it's too much work to be with people who are not like us. It's much easier to be alone together and friend and defriend and hide so that they don't know we want to defriend them and to not, you know, all the things that we do so that we don't have to be upset and we can keep our world full of equilibrium. But that's not the way the church was supposed to be. The first century world wanted to see something divine. And the church showed up and showed them something that was not of this world. See, we, we talk about communities in our culture. We talk about this community and that community and you know, there's the white community and there's the African-American community and there's the pro-life community and there's the pro-choice community and there's this community and that community. And we hear about community all the time in our culture and we hear about the word acceptance all the time in our culture. But let me tell you what the church has always had the corner of the market concerning is unconditional acceptance. We have lots of community in our nation as long as it's monolithic. As long as it's uniform, you vote outside that little community, boom, there's a problem. If you don't share all the ideology of that particular community, boom, there's going to be a problem. Our culture does not offer unconditional acceptance. It only offers acceptance to a group of people who are already like you, think like you. But the church invited diversity in and said, hey, there's something greater that unites us. His name is Jesus. And it was something that the world could not believe what they were seeing because they were actually loving one another the way that Jesus had loved them. And inside that circle, the power of that circle prevented them from quitting. It prevented them from losing faith. It prevented their hearts from wandering too far or their faith from drifting too far. It prevented them from getting so discouraged that they were willing to check out. It prevented them from becoming lonely. It gave them the place to ask questions and to learn together and to share together and to laugh together. It offered them a place to be known and to be loved. What the rose could never offer them, the circle offered them. See, it is easy to drift away from a row, but it is difficult to drift away from a circle. You show up in a row, you sit under the dark lights, you come in a little late and leave just a little early because you don't want anybody to get too close and ask a question and perhaps, you know, you've been there and you've done that and you had a bad church experience and you just want to come sit because you love it and it's great and that's awesome. We are so glad that you do. But you are putting yourself at risk. You're putting your family at risk. It's easy to drift away from a row. You cannot show up for a week. And there may be a person, two people, three people that notice you're not here and may give you a call. Where were you? Oh, you know, and then you come back and then you're gone for two and then you're gone for three and then all of a sudden you're gone for four and you're telling all your friends, I'm never going back to that church. I wasn't there for a month and they didn't even know it. <laughs> Can I tell you more than that? Not only did we not know you left, we probably never knew you were here. Because rows are not sufficient for the church to be the church. This room, rows, services were never meant to meet the full need of what it means to be a Jesus follower. You need a row, that's important. You also need a circle that is equally important because that is the power of a circle. You can drift away from a row, you can stop attending, you can just leave faith altogether and you may or may not be missed. But the good news is the church created a way that you can be missed and that you won't be allowed to drift too far. Because if you try to drift from a circle, somebody that you've been eating dinner with, somebody that you've been hanging out with is gonna call you and say, listen, we've not seen you, what's going on? And they're not gonna take your little two cent lie seriously when you say nothing's wrong. 
We've just been busy. You know how it is, we've just been busy. Now they don't always talk like that. Sometimes they say, we've been busy. <laughs> Equal opportunity, all right? They're not gonna believe your two cent lie to say, oh, we've just been busy, we can't. No, maybe sooner or later, if, if we're doing our job and the circle's doing their job, they're gonna say, listen, Al, you know I love you, but I don't believe you. And then maybe, just maybe, you tear down a fence and say, well, you know, kind of got our feelings or not. We've just been struggling and it's just easier. And man, we just got, we just got sidetracked. Well, good, well, come on back. Because it won't let you drift too far. What we can't do for you as a church in a row, there is a group of someones who can do that for you in a circle. Yeah, but it's awkward. Yes, it's called relationship. <laughs> Dating's awkward, but you did it anyway. <laughs> Honeymoon, a bit awkward, but you did it anyway. <laughs> Awkward's never kept you from doing things. So don't cop out and say, oh, it's just too tough. And you know, it's not, I'm, 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 I'm a private person. This is too important. This is your heart wondering. This is your faith drifting. This is what the church created so that we wouldn't do that which we are prone to do. Because life inside the circle is powerful. And it looks like this, the whole New Testament tells us what life inside the circle is supposed to look like. We love one another inside the circle. Hard for you to love in rows. A tender 567 back here in the back corner. How well can you love a tender 724 over? No, you can't do that. Bear with one another. How do we bear with one another in this room? We don't even get to know each other in this room. You know why the New Testament says bear with one another? Because you're gonna sit across the table from somebody and they're gonna be eating and they're gonna be eating like this. <laughs> and you're gonna think, dear Jesus. <laughs> and then you're gonna fix your eyes on Jesus and be reminded he died for you. I think I can get past this person's inability to chew. <laughs> they're gonna open up their mouth and they're gonna start telling a story and you're not gonna be able to shut them up and everybody under the table are kicking each other. They're giving each other like the... That's, but that's the beauty of it. We have to bear with one another. I know it's hard for you to believe, but if you are around me long enough, I'd get on your nerves. I would. There's things that I, I would just do. There are some things about me that would drive you crazy. There are some things about you that drive other people crazy. But see, what we want to do is and get, we want to open ourselves to a world that never bothers us, that we never have to bear with. This is where we prefer one another, accept one another, carry each other's burdens. How do we carry each other's burdens in this room? How do we do it? We can pray for each other. But how do we show up on Monday morning? How do we give you a call on Tuesday night sitting in rows to say, what you ask us to pray about, I can't stop thinking about it. What can we do? Where is that gonna happen at in this room? If you judge any church by what happens in rows, you're gonna judge that church lacking. But this was not supposed to be the end all place where the church was supposed to be. This is where we restore each other. This is when we fall down. We have somebody there picking us back up. It's where we build each other up and forgive each other and submit to one another and comfort one another. And we pray for each other and we serve each other and we're hospitable to each other. And we don't judge one another. No judgment. It's a safe place to be. You don't agree with me politically, that's fine. We may go back and forth once we get to know each other. But in the end, I'm gonna love you. Even though you believe different than I am and you're wrong, I'm, gonna I'm just gonna love you. We're not gonna envy each other. You come to group and tell us, you come to that little circle and tell us, oh, we got a brand new car. And you're not gonna, when everybody leaves, you're not gonna look at your spouse and say, how are they paying for that? <laughs> I tell you, guarantee you they can't sleep at night, they're in so much debt. <laughs> no, you're gonna say, that's awesome. That's incredible. I, I would rather you have a car than me. You think if we were actually like that, the world might actually want to pay us some attention? 
Instead of being the envious, judgmental people that we can be towards each other, not to mention those on the outside. It's where we bless each other. It's where you pay for somebody who can't afford their papers in the story that we saw. So that's where you do that. It's when somebody says, my family member died and we he caught us by surprise and we can't pay for the funeral. That's where you bless. It's when somebody gets honest enough to say, I don't, I don't have to tell you this, we, we can't, we're having a hard time with our rent this month. That's when the circle of people say, all right, we're gonna bless. This is where that happens. This, this is where those things come out. That's where these things get taken care of. This is where we're compassionate to each other. These things can't be done in rows like they can be done in circles. That's why it's hard to walk away from a circle because who wants to walk away from that? See, these things you can see, but maybe the best thing about being in a circle is the thing that you can't see, and this is where we're gonna end it. One of the greatest things about being in a circle that you can't see, those things you can't see, but one of the greatest things that you can't see, you can't measure, it doesn't give you any warm and fuzzies, is what a circle has the power to prevent. And these are verses that we looked at in week one, and this is where we're gonna end this series today, right back in the same place, because this is what the writer of Hebrews says. See to it. This is a group command for all of us. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Again, refresher. Who among us can have a heart that turns away from the living God? Me, you, all of us. We're prone to wonder. We tend to drift. But here's what he says. See to it that no one does that. How do we do that? By seeing to each other. By being in a circle where you can see other people. See to it that nobody goes south. See to it where nobody checks out, where nobody drifts too far. Because there are things, I know you're gonna not believe this, there are things about you you can't see about you. That's why you need people around you. There are things about you that your spouse is not brave enough to tell you. So you need people around you. There are people in your life that sees things about you that you can't see. And we all need that. See to it, brothers and sisters. We need people who says, ah, I think you're getting a little, I don't know, I'm worried. Don't take this wrong. I'm not thinking I'm better than you, but mm, I would not. We need that. And we don't need to be so sissified that we get so bent up out of shape when somebody talks to us about life. <sighs> who do they think they are? They think. They are your friend. Imagine that. That's the power of a circle. He goes on to say, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you, nobody gets left behind, may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because life is tough, and nobody should fall through the cracks. No one should be deceived by sin. In other words, the best defense against the sin in me, because there's sin in me, there's sin in you, is the people whom I allow around me. Those are going to be the people that don't allow me to go too far and check out and do something crazy. So he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another, inspire one another, motivate one another towards love and good deeds. In other words, a group of we helps create a better me. Let's all just say that together. A group of we helps create a better me, and it really does. And it's just not we in a row, it's we in a circle. That's where that happens at. A group of we creates a better me, it will create a better you. And he says, word of advice, not giving up meeting together because together is important. Being here on a Sunday, I don't wanna to seem too old fashioned, don't, don't wanna come across too conservative, but being in church is important. Sitting in a row week after week or most weeks is important. Don't forsake the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing because some had already been checking out. It is important that you attend a row. It is important that you attend a circle. Don't forsake that. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, Jesus is coming. We've got work to do. We've got a mission. We're prone to wonder from it prone to drift from it. 
So you need a row that you commit yourself to, a place, a local church, that you are there, engaged, involved, and just not a row only, but also a circle. Because when you begin to distance yourself from a row, you will distance yourself from a circle. But most people will distance themselves from a row without ever getting to the circle. And it's the beginning of a really bad season of life. So don't distance yourself from a row or a circle. Don't underestimate the power of either one of those things. This is the New Testament. Don't forsake the meeting of yourself together. Don't do it, it's important. Meet together. Don't go through life alone. The stakes are too high. We all need a place to be known, to be loved. And that is the local church. And specifically, it's the circle within my local church. September 17th, we're launching a whole new fleet of new groups here at our church. Many of you have never been in a group here. Some of you have tried to be in a group here and it was a bad experience, but hey, you got a bad haircut once and you got another one, right? It happens, it's awkward. And sometimes, you know, you got with a dud group or you had a dud leader and they just kind of let it go. But I want you to understand how important it is. Listen, this is not something we've always got right at our church. Our church has rapidly grown so much. We've been trying to do this and we're gonna continue to get better at it and better at it and better at it. And we wanna put more people in groups this fall than what we've ever put in groups before ever. And it may not feel like anything great is happening in your group, but you have no idea what it may be preventing. But it's those moments when you actually stop, you know, putting up the fences and you let things down and you can actually do what Jesus said we're supposed to do, that power of the circle. And you do those things and you pray with each other and you ask, how can we help? And how can I serve? And what do we need to do? That's, that's when, that's when you see the beauty and the wonder of the local church. So some of you, need to get into a group for the first time. Some of you, your group broke. My group, I talked, talked to my group leader yesterday, recommitted our group. I don't know if you can, a group can recommit its life, but our group recommitted its life on the phone the other night. I, I wanna have the best season of group that I've had because I, 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 it's just important. It's important for me, it's important for the people that I love and the people that I call my friends. And, and I, I, want to, I, I want it to be the place where we can be the church. And so maybe you need to get back in a group that you fell out of. Maybe you just need to try to find a new group altogether. We're gonna be launching a whole new set of new groups. We're gonna be launching a thing again called Starting Point. If you're new to faith or returning to faith after a long time, it's a place to ask questions. It's a place to get your handle on things again. We're gonna be launching a brand new thing. We did a test run of it last spring called Growth Track. And it's gonna be a four week thing right here that happens during one of our morning services where people find out how to grow their faith how to pray, how to read their Bible, how to share their faith, just, just elementary things to get you going. We have groups that meet at this building at different times of the week. We have groups that meet in homes, but you need a group. You need a circle. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to text Creek Groups. Take out your phone right now. Some of you already had your phone out and you've been texting friends. So you might as well go ahead and text this. Text Creek Groups to 313131. And here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna get a link and we're gonna ask you for a couple of lines. You don't even have to give us a blood sample. We don't want your social security number, W2s, you can keep them, all right? But here's what, you, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna get a link and you're gonna give us some information and then we're gonna call you. Actually, human being call you. And it's gonna be time consuming for our staff, so don't give us a rogue phone number. Don't give us your mother-in-law's number. But we're gonna call you and see how we can serve you as a church to get you into a circle because it's that important. Because if you put your faith in a row, let me just tell you, I am going to disappoint you. I am not going to be the pastor that gets there. I will get there if I know about it and I will get there if I can and I will do what I can. And our staff will do the same. But wouldn't it mean much better for a group of people who didn't have to look your picture up on Facebook or to ask around and find out who you are? because we'll have 15, 16, perhaps 1,700 people here today. Wouldn't it be better that a group of someones know your name and they're there serving and loving 
They're letting your pastors know what's going on, who needs to be there, what needs to happen. This is what makes the church, the church. And if you put your faith in a row, we're gonna disappoint you. And you may leave hurt and you may leave feeling like we don't care, but we do care and we do love you. And we don't wanna see you wonder and we don't wanna see you drift for you, for your spouse, for your marriage, for your family, for your kids, for your grandkids. And from the very beginning, the answer has been, we are gonna to meet together in rows. We're gonna keep doing it until Jesus comes back. And we're gonna to meet together in some circles. And it's gonna be awkward and you may not be an extrovert and any of those things, but it may be one of the most wonderful things that ever happens to you. And they may turn out to be the best friends you've ever had. And in the moment that you need the church most, your church is gonna have a name. And it's just not gonna be the Creek Church, but it's gonna be Joe that shows up and it's gonna be Susan that shows up. And they're gonna hold your hand by that casket. And they're gonna walk with you into that doctor's office. And they're gonna help you pray for your son and daughter to come back home. And they're gonna be there when times are tough and they may even help bless you on the side. Because that is the church. We are the church and we meet in rows and we meet in circles and you need both. If you wanna be a group leader, if you wanna take charge and you wanna shepherd and care for some people, we need group leaders. And we'd love for you to go outside these doors and go talk to somebody at Next Steps and say, hey, I, I wanna volunteer as a group leader. You don't have to host it in your home. We got people that will do that. Maybe you're here and you don't text, but you wanna be in a group, go to, go to Next Steps and tell them, I wanna be in a group. Even if you've been in one and it didn't work out, come on. The world is looking for something divine. Let's be the ones that show them something out of this world. That when they look in, they say, oh my goodness. Look at how they love one another. Father, speak to our hearts. I pray people take the next step. We know we need to. Don't let us buy into the lie we're too busy. We're as busy as we want to, most of us. We're as busy as our priorities have dictated us. I pray that we'll take the step. I pray that we'll do what we need to do. I pray we'll commit to it. I pray we'll get back in our groups. We'll take a step towards being in a new group because this is the way the church has been from the very beginning. When the church is at its best, we have people in rows and we have people in circles. And I pray in Jesus' name that we'll all make a fresh commitment to both. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.